Hey friends, visit patreon.com slash femfreak to join our podcast community. Yeah, we can have a conversation about like our personal information and who has access to it and to what purposes that information is being used. But what's really going on here is that the devil cannot abide to be mocked. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined today by two women who are way too broke to give Disney Plus 30 of their hard-earned Corona bucks to watch a movie. Carolyn Pettit. Seriously, though. Like, seriously. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and Ebony Adams. <laughs> For real. This week, we're going to be talking about some entertainment news, the, like, roundup of the things that we've been uh, itching to chat about over uh, in the worlds of film, TV, and gaming over the last week, month, you know, whatever. Lucy, This is a loosey-goosey. So stay tuned to find out what we care about. <laughs> what we ca- what we care about, <laughs> like this, yeah, this is what's you know, most important to us in the whole world right now. Yep, is this stuff? No, that's pop culture news. Yep, yep. All right, well, you know, I'm just I'm just giving you a hard time, Anita. It's as it's as it should be. Yeah. It's as it should be. I um actually, you know, one so because this I, is entertainment news, it's what we care about in entertainment news. But you know, like uh. As you said that, I was like, you know, what is happening in Beirut and what has been happening oh, in Lebanon has yeah. been um, really um, <clears throat> difficult to watch. And really, it's a it's a huge, huge problem. Uh, I'm not explaining any of this well, because that's what this episode is going to be like. But I, you know, I do kind of want to acknowledge that that's a thing that's happening at this moment of recording. Um, you know, I not that this matters, but I have family in Beirut. Um, so it's an issue that is close to home for me. But, you know, it, it's something that like. I think that this is a really great example of how, like, yes, there was an explosion um, and it was um, caused by delinquency, right? By by bureaucracy, by, like, inaction Mm -hmm. um, that created, you know, literal death and destruction. But there's been so many structural um, financial economic problems in in Lebanon for, for a while now, and it's just all being compounded and it's really a horrible situation. So, you know, donate yeah. to them, donate to organizations that are providing support and relief in, in Beirut right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and right before we recorded this, I had a good cry watching a CNN segment about like, you know, the, some of the stories of people who have died recently to COVID-19. You know, the, mm. I think that they, they're saying like it's basically one person dying per minute and the death toll, Jesus. you know, is just obviously constantly on the rise here in the, in the U S right now. So, you know, I mean, um, yeah, keeping everything in in perspective, of course, um, with, with what's, um, with the, the, all the tragic events that are happening in the world right now. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, but I, I am kind of glad you called me out on that phrasing (laughs) just so that we're clear. We're, We're talking about entertainment news here, but we also care about, uh, probably more in some ways about um, some of the the bigger, really devastating tragedies that are that have been continuing to happen right now. So that said, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, let's talk about price gouging. <laughs> well, Ebony? Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about like these globe straddling corporations who already, you know, like. 
move and, you know, negotiate these huge sums of money um, requiring more from us, right? So news dropped this week that Disney um, is going to be releasing Mulan and Black Widow um, VOD on their Disney Plus platform for the low, low price of 30 bucks um, in lieu of a theatrical release. Now, there's a lot of ways to feel about this. And by no means do I want to suggest that like the way I feel about it is the way that anyone else needs to feel about it. Particularly, I'm, you know, really sympathetic to um, parents, you know, or people who have like little ones in these quarantine pods who are like, yo, anything that will keep this motherfucker occupied for 90 minutes, I would be willing to pay buku Corona bucks for. So I get it, you know, I get it. And yeah. I'll, like, yeah, I mean, I would much rather people watch these things in their homes versus, you know, go out to a theater right now. Like, it blows my mind that there are theaters open in, like, I'm going to say, like, Kentucky, Ohio. There's several states where theaters are open right now. And I'm just like, what? What are we doing? But just the I, notion that I pay for Disney Plus. Like, I have a subscription to it because I need to rewatch, um, you know, well, you don't need to know what I rewatch constantly on that platform, but I, <laughs> I value it enough to pay $6.99 a month for it. And also I do the, you know, low-key discount socialist thing of sharing my subscription with anyone who asks. So my brother and his family watch it. But I'm like, wait, you going to ask me for another $30 to watch this movie? Yes. So I get that if we were going to go to a theater, we'd be paying more. Yes. I know that we need to support these, you know, creators with, you know, with our, our dollars. Otherwise stuff doesn't get made, but you already have this money. Like Disney is not hurting for bucks. You know, it's smaller independent movies that I'm concerned about. Mulan, Black Widow, y'all going to be fine. You will really, truly be fine. Yeah, and there's also the interesting question here. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think that it's it's outrageous the way that Disney, I mean, Disney as a, as a corporation has, like, shuffled money up to its, like, executives while, you know, it's uh, there are park employees and things who were already, mm-hmm. like, living in their cars and whatnot who have really suffered during this pandemic. Like, like the way that Disney handles their money just is straight up, like, objectionable, like, obscene and, and, and really just terrible um but like there's also that another angle here that i think is worth mentioning which is these specific films that are being you know moved to disney plus in lieu of a a theatrical release like is it something about these films specifically Mm -hmm. mulan with its asian cast black Mm -hmm. widow with its you know female lead female focus that are that make disney feel like well it's okay if these don't get a big theatrical release Whereas other films, like they wouldn't, maybe we and we don't know yet because it, it may come to pass that some other, you know, films that star a, a, a platoon of white dudes, you know, meg, white male megastars or whatever, will will get this treatment as well. But so, you know, I think Nia DaCosta, who is somebody we're going to talk about in rel- relation to other news in a moment, but is a black, you know, a film film director um, in her own right, tweeted about this issue, um, saying, saying I and I quote, this is her her tweet. Quote, I wasn't particularly interested in Mulan, but it's a bummer that a film of this scope with an Asian cast won't have its due a worldwide theatrical release. We should all pay close attention to the movies whose theatrical releases are protected and those that are not. Um, Yeah. And like when I saw that tweet, you know, um, I like many people immediately thought of the movie Tenet, right? Like that the release for that keeps getting pushed back. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
you know, and, you know, as Nita Costa and other have, others have said, like, which films are deemed not important enough to wait for a theatrical release? Because there are like benefits and there is a status accorded to having that theatrical release. For one thing, awards, you know, like we still don't know, you know, how awards are going to be handled for these films that are getting, you know, VOD releases as opposed to standard theatrical releases. Like this stuff matters. Um, and it matters in terms of who gets hired to do what kinds of jobs, um, you know, what level they are, you know, allowed to progress in their in their careers. Like it, it matters. It is more than just a question of do I want people to see things, you know, surround sound, THX, whatever. It's it's a larger issue than that. Yeah. Anita, you're going to be paying that $30. I know what a huge Scarlett Johansson fan you are. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, that was mean. Hey, you know. I have I have I have backtracked that long grudge I've had. Um although let's I still think that I don't like her as Black Widow. Whatever. Um yeah, anyways. All right, let's move on. You didn't answer my question. <laughs> you gonna pay that thirty yeah. dollars? Oh, oh, um uh, no, maybe <laughs> I, I'm cur- I'm honestly I'm curious about Mulan. Um and you know, maybe we'll do like like you said, I like $30 sounds totally batshit, especially on top of like having like you have to have actually can you ha- can you um rent it without having a subscription to Disney Plus? Right, that's no, that, that I don't know, but I wonder if yeah. it's like um like Black is King or Hamilton like you actually have to have a subscription. Yeah, for exactly. It, actually, so you know? it's so in which you know, case it's, it's further seven dollars. Yeah. Yeah, on top of 30. Anyways, like I get I kind of get I don't think it's a I don't think it's right, but I kind of get that. Like, if you all went to the theater, like if the three of us share, but like rented it and shared the one thirty dollars, it'd still be cheaper than the three of us going to the theater. But also, like new times, get with it, Disney, whatever you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We'll see. But I'm I I regardless of all of the complicated factors that you've all just brought up, like I am curious about Mulan in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have liked to have seen it in the theaters, but yeah. we can't do that now because we can't have nice things. Drive in. <laughs> All right, Carolyn, what are you thinking about? Okay, so there's a, a comic strip called Six Chicks, uh, uh, Six Chicks, C-H-I-X. It's a syndicated strip that runs in a, in a plethora of papers across the country. And um, one of the cartoonists on the strip is a black um, cartoonist named Bianca Zuniz. And she um, uh, wrote, drew a strip that ran recently that caused a, uh, such a, a controversy that, that um, I, I believe Six Chicks has now been um, removed from from a number of papers because they were so like outraged by the content of this particular strip. Um, so, um, and I just think the strip itself and and Zunis's, um explanation for what the strip is doing is so um, worthwhile and important to 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 talk about. So, real quick, the, the strip itself depicts a black woman um, wearing a mask uh, and a t shirt that says "I can't breathe." And it's it's a stand-in for the cartoonist herself. And she's like, uh, apparently, she's obviously like standing in line at the grocery store. Uh, the t-shirt, so yeah, the t-shirt says, I, I can't breathe. And and to, next to her is a white, older white woman in line at the, at the grocery store who is not wearing a mask. And the white woman says to the black woman, if you can't breathe, then take that silly mask off. And... <laughs> So, um, yeah, so, so here is, I'm reading from a Twitter thread by Bianca Zunis about the, the, um, the strip. 
Uh, She says, okay, now to explain this comic because everyone has been getting it wrong. It's easy to assume that the white woman talking to me is a racist. That may or may not be true, but that is not the point. The point is how white people see issues that affect black peoples as trivial. The whole mask debate has been compared to oppression, which I find incredibly offensive. The fact that white peoples want to claim oppression now for having to do their civic duty of protecting others is not the black struggle whatsoever. White people have assumed for generations that racism is simply about our sensitivity and not a systemic issue. Furthermore, I want the comic to challenge liberal whites who assume that every white person they feel superior over is racist. This is just a random white woman. I don't know her. So, um... Yeah, and because of this uh, strip, it was pulled from many, many newspapers. And in fact, like an apology was run for the strip, which Zunis herself did not in any way like approve um, or like, you know, sign off on. Um, So, you know, um, so she, you know, herself has said, like, um, I'm being silenced over white feelings from a gag comic. you know, uh, anyway, uh, for the record, I do not apologize for this comic, and this is censorship, uh, Zunisa said. So anyway, um, um, uh, a yeah, like, just a really pointed, really layered, you know, one-panel comic that I think gets at the heart of of why the, like, non-maskers' positions are, 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 are such bullshit and rooted in such, like, white privilege. And anyway, um, so, and I thought her her way of explaining what the comic was doing was so, um, so pointed and so precise. Um, so anyway, yeah, the comic itself is wonderful. Yeah. Like it's very, it's, it's very does, it does what you would expect political cartoons to do, right. Where it's like, it's almost like a punch in the gut in some ways. It's, this makes me think about, um, the idea, the, the like longstanding myth of the like liberal media, Right. The, mm. the longstanding myth of like the media is on the side of liberals. Um, and and oh, and I'm like, but that like we all know that that's not true. But this is a great example of that. Like there's no reason that this should have gotten pulled at all. Like it's it it's it is a statement, but it's not whatever. So and, and yeah. I'm starting I've been doing some research around like algorithms and um, there's some news around Facebook recently that like they've been more lenient to misinformation coming from like alt-right groups and mm-hmm. like and, and the groups that are actually spreading all of this misinformation. And so it just feels related to this larger equation of our social media and our, our, um, our press, like really actually starting to censor and silence like leftist voices or at least, um, I don't know. Yeah. To, yeah. To there, kind of, paper over the uh, the uncomfortable like you know like not wanting to make white people uncomfortable with uh, with our with our with our racism right and um yeah yeah i mean the apology that was posted was so over the top and so groveling from these outlets that um canceled the strip excuse me and um so i saw the apology before i saw (laughs) the actual comic and was completely blown away, you know, because I thought when I saw the apology, like, wow, okay, what what was in there that they felt this was necessary? And as as pointed, as intelligent, as, you know, like direct as the comic is, you know, uh, to my mind, you know, because I, you know, like walk in certain circles where, you know, like my own echo chamber of Ebony's, you know, 
it, it seems like such a given the message of this comic that I couldn't quite believe like this is it. This is the thing that has provoked such a strong reaction. And you can imagine that it had to have like they had to have gotten so many calls or gotten calls from, you know, so many of the right kinds of people read white people um, for them to have taken this this drastic step. But <clears throat> excuse me, it is ultimately so banal what the what the the comic offers, you know, like it, and it just, you know, it reminded me like, oh, yeah, there are there are people for whom this equation, just the the like laying bare of their own hypocrisy is simply too much to face. You know, like the problem is that you pointed it out. Not that I don't subscribe to these beliefs, but the problem is that you you have the gall to make me try and face it and make me look ridiculous. Like that's ultimately what the issue is. It's just yeah. it blew me away. I like that laying bare of their hypocrisy is very nice phrasing. Take that. Take it. Use it. I love it. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm just going to take a moment to appreciate it. <laughs> uh, speaking of um, censorship, <laughs> let's talk about so TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Um, this is I like. This is the dumbest. We are in the dumbest timeline. It's so ridiculous. So TikTok. I'm sure you've heard of it. If you haven't seen it, it is a social media platform where people make videos. Big surprise, whatever. Um, It is owned by a Chinese company named ByteDance. And um, the American president, Mr. Donald Trump, is personally offended by the things that are on TikTok. And therefore, he has declared a national state of emergency with regards to this social media app and is actually putting in an executive order to ban transactions with the parent company, uh, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, as well as um, WeChat, which is a Chinese texting app. This is wild. So so a couple of things I want to bring up about this. Um, one is, um, okay, a co- so a couple of things. This is clearly a part of this ongoing feud that Trump is personally waging against China, like that that there's no doubt that that's a part of this. There's also an enormous amount of anti-Trump sentiment on the platform. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Sarah Cooper has gained enormous notoriety uh, with her her, um, ridiculing of Trump, but by far like one of many examples of, of folks on that platform using the platform to, you know, dismiss, um, critique attack, you know, attack Trump and his, his really racist, horrible beliefs and policies. Um, and so it feels a little bit like a combination of like, we are, um, going after China. He is, he can't shut down the American social media companies. So he, this is like the only one that he can actually do something to. And the, the real kicker of all of this is that Microsoft is in talks to buy the rights to run TikTok in America. And there is like this weird communication dance that's happening between literally the president and Microsoft because the executive order comes into place like after the date in which Microsoft could potentially purchase um, the the rights to TikTok. Does that make sense? It's super weird. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. I don't, I haven't read up on, nor do I understand like all the, the like the legalities surrounding this, but, uh, but I am, I am floored uh, by just the very idea. I mean, this obviously is something that is, is an eruption of Trump's very, you know, I think fragile, ego um and and just like the idea this is definitely one of those moments where 
you know, I, I almost like in spite of myself, I find myself missing um, a just a president who, uh, uh, you know, like Obama, who behaves more what we might call presidentially, you know, where like during a time like this, you know, um, would be, of course, I mean, uh, speaking uh, with with uh, poignancy and emotion and delicacy about about like the, the tragedies of of coronavirus perhaps would have um, made some really moving uh, speech and about about the, the tragedy in Beirut and like, you know, t- made to talk of like sending aid or these kinds of things. And, and what what's happening from Trump is is, you know, national emergence. TikTok is a national emergency. It's yeah. just, it's I just mean, that like surreal, that extremely like surreal feeling of like, like, how can how can this even be real at a moment like this, that this is what the president is preoccupied with? And this is what he's using his executive well, powers to 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 do. Right. It's so wildly offensive. I need a bigger word than offensive here that um, that forces like we I think we've talked about this on the. Yeah, we did talk about this forces um, in in the the the. God, Portland, help me out here. What is happening in Portland with um, silencing activists, Mm -hmm. kidnapping them, like, like in, Mm -hmm. in these horrific sort of like, um, yeah, like secret ways. police. Yes, uh, thank style. you. Yeah. Unmarked vans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That like that's not a national emergency. I mean, you that know, is like the that... hand of the state itself, though. That is exactly like Trump, right. Like, doing that, right? So totally. So of course that's totally. Not, but I mean, oh yes, it should be. It should be like uh, an affront to all of our sense of like freedoms and what America should be and all of that. But obviously, it's it's not totally. because that is the fascist. The- yeah. Well, right. And because so many people, again, read white people, believe that they will never, ever be targets of the state, which is both wildly false, but also, again, you know, reveals who is granted the status of human and citizen in this country. But this whole thing with TikTok is so worrying. Like, it's it's funny and it's ridiculous, but it is so worrying because it's it's like so many different things are getting muddied, right? So Trump's, you know, part of his rationale is that, you know, we need to be concerned about like the data mining that this Chinese company is doing. And like, yeah, we can have a conversation about like our personal, you know, information and who has access to it and to what purposes that information is being used. But what, as you've said, like what's really going on here is that, you know, the, <laughs> the devil cannot abide to be Like Trump and his incredibly fragile ego are and his administration are actively stamping down on dissent. And yes, sometimes, you know, dissent is, you know, being out in the streets, but it is also what like these young folks are doing on, you know, TikTok and, and things like it. Like the notion that you would dare say something that, you know, criticizes him or sets him up as a as a figure of ridicule is absolutely beyond the pale for him and for people who have traditionally had power and have had that power unquestioned. I mean, that's ultimately what's behind this. Like, it, we, we don't see any of this, like, tamping down on, like, Facebook or Twitter, for instance, because those platforms are both guilty of propping up the state in ways that like people way smarter than me have talked about but because tiktok like there's something generational going on there like it's this you know the ways in which like young kids you know we talk about that like that trump rally where supposedly you know all these teenagers were reserving tickets and then it turns out that you know no one showed up and you know trump looked a fool like this is what you must never do to the abusive figure 
is hold them up to ridicule. And and so it's it's worrying, you know? And so like, you know, like I said, it's so funny, but it's also like, this is just, you know, one more step that, you know, one more inch that we're sliding down into this morass of fascism. And I'm like, what are we doing? What the, what? Well, and this is a big, like the other thing here is like, how much power does the president hold unilaterally? Mm-hmm. Like right. that the president can sh- can do this with an executive order. What the fuck? Right. And we're being, like, you know, even if we react to these things and manage to um, like overturn them, the fact is that he was allowed to do them in the first place. And some of this damage can- cannot be undone. Like at one point, are we going to be proactive, you know, and remove this man from office, you know, is my question. Right. There's a, you know, to go back to like, I think one of the problems of blind spots with say the liberal media, right. Which has repeatedly done that thing where, where when Trump will shift his tone on something for a day, they'll fall all over themselves writing stories about yeah. Trump sh- finally, you know, de- demonstrates you know, like gravitas as he begins to take the the coronavirus seriously. And then like the next day, Trump is out there just saying the same just uh, arrogant, stupid shit. You know, once again, like it's there's similarly this sense with the, the, the media, the mainstream media very broadly of like of like, oh, don't Trump can't do that. Don't worry. Like there are checks and balances like Trump can't do that. But yet again and again, he seen, he just sort of does these things and, and the checks and balances like aren't actually working because, you know, whatever, like uh, because because there's enough Republicans on Trump's side mm-hmm. that they're not going, you know, in, in, in the Senate and whatnot, that they're not going to hold him accountable or what have you. Um, so, yeah, there there is that that real feeling that like if Trump can do this with. TikTok, like, like, you know, where does it end? Right. I mean, yes, he can. He can. Right now, there can be the pretense of, well, it's China there. It's it's, you know, the data uh, collecting, et cetera. But we all I mean, at this point, like Trump just keeps pushing the line further and further. Like like there's no reason to think that that this won't become um, this won't shift to domestic uh, corporations and. Mm-hmm. you know, platforms yeah. and things. Well, and as well. legally speaking is like, even if Trump does all these things that are illegal, which we ha- like are unconstitutional, which have been proven and shown to, to do anything about it. Like, I guess like quote unquote properly, you have to go through our legal system, which is hella slow. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter the legalities of any of this because he can still make it happen. And the harm can still be, can right. still can right. still uh, ha- also happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to bring up the privacy thing really quick. So uh, I think that that's related here because um, TikTok gathers a lot of personal data. There is concern about like the Chinese government having access to that data and what that means. Facebook also collects a lot of personal oh, right. data. Right? <laughs> like, right. like let's let's be let's be clear that like you know don't get on your high horse about this just yet. And there are differences without a doubt, but don't think that like being on Facebook is is. Um, absolves yeah. you of, of or it, there's any security there. Um, mm-hmm. Sarah Jiang in a article for The Verge about this says, when it comes down to it, the thorniest privacy dispute of 2020 isn't about privacy or technology at all. It's about China. The question is Facebook better, worse, or the same as TikTok is more or less the same as is the United States better, worse, or the same as China? Right. Um, and then super last point on this. I don't know the details of this, but there's something around Tencent getting pulled into this problem where – and Tencent is a massive Chinese entertainment company that is has huge ties in gaming and huge ties to American uh, game companies. And so there is a question of like 
is this going to have spillover to folks like Riot Games, for example, and League of Legends and, and all these other companies that also do business with Tencent and in Chinese markets? So this is this is this is kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So Yeah, like it's not just about like, you know, funny videos of Tabitha Brown with her daughter, you know, like, come on. Yeah. Wake up, people. Um, Carolyn mentioned uh, Nia DaCosta earlier. Ebony, do you want to tell us who she is and why she's in the news right now? Yeah, I would love to. So, A, Nia DaCosta is fucking amazing. So, uh, if you are like me, i.e. someone who cares about good media, then you are excited about the uh, upcoming Candyman uh, remake that Nia DaCosta is the director of. Like, this... Movie, it's just going to be so bomb. Again, remake of the like just iconic horror film from the what was it late eighties, early nineties with Tony Todd. Um, about you know, it, like go check out the original. But I'm so excited for for this new one. Anyways, just recently, in fact, I think yesterday at the time of this recording, Nia DaCosta, who is a black woman, um, was announced as um, the director of Captain Marvel two. So. This is huge news. Like, only the second Black woman to direct a superhero film. And I mean, Marvel doesn't fuck around with their money, y'all. Like, Nia DaCosta may not be a person that you've heard of, but the fact that Marvel is entrusting her with, you know, a significant entry into the franchise. Like, say what you will, you know, about, like, toxic fanboy reactions to uh, the first Captain Marvel movie. That movie made a lot of money. Um... Folks really enjoyed it, and it really struck a chord, particularly with um, with young women and young girls. And so, I'm absolutely just in love with the idea of Nia DaCosta directing the sequel, and I'm hopeful that this means that we will get even more of Monica Rambeau um, in um, mm. in the sequel. In fact, let's have the queer love story that we should have gotten <laughs> in the first Captain Marvel movie. But yeah, I mean, like. Okay, we could have larger conversations, and I'm sure we will, because I guarantee we're going to be talking about Captain Marvel 2 on the podcast in 2035 when theaters open back up again. But um, so, <laughs> We're going like, to be you know, so old. I'm already so old. So, I know. We're going to so be come, so much older. <laughs> I'm going to be recording that shit in the hospice. It's going to be the last thing I do, and I will regret it. Can we but, have um, rooms next to each other, the three of us, and we'll still do this <laughs> oh podcast, even though we'll just be like oh. watching whatever the equivalent of Golden Girls reruns are? We'll I watching. wouldn't do that to Carol. Like, I don't want her final days to have to be putting up with my bullshit. And Anita, you're 10 years younger than I am. So you <laughs> better fine. not be in the hospice at the same time. It I will mean, mean you have made some incredibly bad choices in the interim. It's true. I mean, that can already be accounted for. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, like, so so I am excited about this, you know? Um, I, I do think that, like, there is, without lapsing too far into sparkling generalities, I do think that there will be a different sensibility um, um, behind this film. Like we already know that the Captain Marvel movies, or excuse me, the, the character of Captain Marvel, as she's been presented in the first movie is something that, you know, like is so female forward, you know, not just as a kind of superficial gloss in the way that like, I fear the black widow movie was, um, and so I'm hopeful that we'll get it even more of that in, in the sequel. And as I said, like, I think, you know, we're going to get like, I just can't imagine Nia DaCosta um, directing a movie in which Monica Rambeau does not have a prominent, a more prominent part. So I'm excited. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's like the only piece of good news that we have in our this week. <laughs> Center Day news. Yeah. Speaking of good news, Carolyn, you want to tell us how trash Ellen is? Well, okay, yes, sure. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's it's been, rum- let us say, rumors have swirled around Ellen DeGeneres for folks in, you know, uh, who work sort of in rank and file uh, parts of the, the entertainment industry, TV, for many, many, many years about Ellen herself being, like, really ruthless and, and cruel and just the whole... Um, culture around her show the ellen you know the smash hit ellen talk show which of course is like is a is a uh an emblem of like niceness right i mean that's sort of the mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 delicious twist to all of this is how much ellen ellen's brand and ellen as a figure kind of leverage like niceness and politeness and she's as 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 like a, a defining kind of quality and like I think a lot of us confronted this explicitly somehow when she was um she was like hobnobbing with um with George W Bush right and a lot of us were like yeah but he's a fucking war criminal like like it's not cool to be nice to um people like that and she's like no, no and she's like you be nice to everyone and like so we can just have those larger philosophical discussions about what what does it even mean to be nice or kind like 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 to actually be decent sort of predicates not being not treating uh, war criminals as cool buddy buddy people that you hang out with etc but anyway um like things have really come to um c- c- exploded um in in recent weeks in a way that you know these things that for for a long time were just simmering rumors are now being made um explicit as um as uh just um, many people have come forward about um, just uh, really the, their experience, you know, former employees of the Ellen show coming forward about um, the, the, the sexual harassment, the, just the, just the whole culture of like toxicity and, and ugliness and cruelty that, um, that exists on the show. And really what's, I, I guess the most fascinating to me about this whole thing is the way in which many celebrities, you know, um, are kind of closing ranks around Ellen and like supporting mm-hmm. her in this, um, and 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 actually like perpetuating the idea that Ellen herself is a very n- nice, kind, you know, decent person. Um, when of course, like any of us who are like working class have worked in in like um, like sort of more rank and file jobs, etc. Are I think most of us are intimately familiar with the ways in which people who have certain amount of money and power and privilege um, can be very, very kind or warm to each other and, and, and treat the people below them like absolute shit. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the case at the Ellen show is that of course, like of course celebrities get along with Ellen. She's nice to them. She, you know, whatever she treats them as peers, she invites them. They all come to her birthday party, whatever. Um, but that doesn't mean that that the people who actually work to make the show happen are treated with the respect um, th- th- that they deserve. Uh, so, so for instance, one person who tweeted in support of Ellen was Jay Leno um, with a very, you know, kind of just generic tweet that just says, I don't discard a 40-year friendship on hearsay. The Ellen I know has raised over $125 million for charity and has always been a kind and decent person. Oh, I fully God. support her, Jay Leno. Like, first of all, and also that, that bogus notion that philanthropy... 
from like right. the, from like you know hundred millionaires and billionaires like actually means anything in terms of their character or their quality. But um, this tweet was um, quote tweeted by uh, a, a Twitter account um, uh, named Kia Speaks, um, and th- uh, they said of Jay Leno's tweet, as someone who does digital strategy, I can recognize a digital campaign when I see one. These fools received an I Love Ellen toolkit via Google Drive full of tweets they could just copy and paste, and here we are. So, like that campaign among celebrities mm-hmm. to protect and shore up Ellen's image as like a decent person while the... The, the brand that that has you know been built up over all these years is is really just rapidly like crumbling before all of our eyes is is anyway it's really something to to behold <laughs> it really is and you know what's one of the things that's interesting is the way that um you know we're we're having this conversation about how you can be a member of one um like marginalized community or one um community that is disempowered while also participating and disempowering others from another subject position. So the fact that, you know, Ellen is a queer woman does not mean that it is, she is unable to be abusive herself, you know? Like, that dog don't hunt, <laughs> as country folks say, you know? And so there's there's this um, undercurrent to some of the defenses of her that, like, Oh, you know, a, a man who, at the top, you know, who's so divorced from what goes on, you know, um, among the lower rank and file employees would never be held to the standard and whatever and blah, blah. And it's like, you know, like you can be shitty even though you, you know, like, as I say, in one area of your life, like not all of your identity categories may not be ones of privilege, but that does not mean you are unable to participate in, you know, exploitation or abuse um, of others. But yeah, Kara, like this notion that like, it's so like strikingly tone deaf the way that these celebrities come out and they're like, well, she's never been that way to me. Well, of course she wouldn't, you know, Jay Leno. Of course she wouldn't. (laughs) Katy Perry, like her her career, her job is literally about being nice to you and cozying up to you. She would not have the career that she has if she was an asshole to you. You know, that does not matter. That does not signify. That's not what we're talking about here. And so the fact that you think that that's sufficient you know, like, you know, how she treats, you know, Ashton Kutcher. Give me a fucking break. And then Portia de Rossi, her wife, posting that Instagram um, graphic that's like, hashtag, I stand with Ellen. Are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> I stand with Ellen like she's a victim, you know, of trafficking or something. Like, are you kidding me? If y'all don't go somewhere and sit down in your multi-million dollar Calabasas home, I'm going to lose my shit. <laughs> I I don't know why I just thought of this. It's like tangentially related, but um like I I consider myself a very low-key, lazy feminist pop culture historian, like super low-key, y'all. That's whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. I don't know all the things. But, you know, there are like there are tentpole media from the 90s that I think we we can call back to in a lot of ways to look at the history of the like the progression of intersectional feminism in our media. And Roseanne um, is an example of that. Right. So Roseanne, the original show, there's all this analysis around how it really like was mainstreaming um, uh, celebration around queerness and class and 
body size and all of these things. Um, but then Roseanne became a fucking monster, right? And I feel like that's sort of with Ellen is it just reminded me of this where like Ellen coming out on national TV was such a big deal. And like I, I do reference it regularly when when related to talking about where we've come and what that looks like. Um, and it's just another example of when you have to be like, and now they suck. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, like mm-hmm. we got to remove the individual from the like the reality of the impact that this situation or this piece of media had. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Whew. Cool. Great. Um, speaking of shitty, powerful people. <laughs> I'm killing it with these transitions. Yeah, today. you are. I can't articulate a thought to save my life right now, but I can do a transition. So. Mm-hmm. Just enjoy this moment with me. Ebony, okay. you want to talk about what's going on at Bon Appetit? <laughs> so <clears throat> Bon Appetit um, has made just an incredible name for itself, particularly in the video space recently with these with their test kitchen videos um, with these in- just wonderful personalities, many of whom are people of color, people like um, Privia Krishna, Rick Martinez, Sola El Wali, you know, who just have developed like these huge followings on the platform Excuse me. And as I said, really elevated Bon Appetit, which granted Bon Appetit was a brand that was well known before um, their test kitchen and, you know, these these cooking videos, but it's really elevated it um, most recently. Right. So um, a few months ago, the editor in chief of Bon Appetit came under fire because a picture surfaced of him in brown face. He uh, resigned. But in the course of that, uh, the discussions around that, it was revealed that the talent of color in these Bon Appetit videos were either not being compensated at all for these videos that they are producing. And these are things with like millions of views, right? Like it is drawing in substantial revenue for the brand. So they either weren't being compensated at all, or they were being compensated so unfairly compared to their, their white uh, colleagues, you know, even though like the talent level and the amount of work that was required of them vastly outweighed what was being asked of the white talent. So this was a huge, huge thing. And so many of the talent of color um, effectively went, you know, like boycotted, you know, so they were, they were, they took a a hiatus from producing any content for the brand um, while negotiations were happening to increase, um, you know, like contract negotiations were, were happening to, to get them the money that they justifiably deserved. So now we are starting to hear that after like months long negotiations, despite all their protestations to the contrary, Bon Appetit is still committed to being on their fuck shit and not giving these people (laughs) the money that they deserve. Like it it, after the I mean, it was a just colossal PR fuck up on their part. You know, the way that this was handled after going through that. After making all these declarations, you know, about a commitment to equity and diversity and, you know, um, redressing harms from the past to then quietly keep doing the same shit you were doing before just seems like let's not even talk about unethical. It just seems like incredibly stupid. And so like a lot of their most popular stars are leaving. Now, I got to be honest with you. I only cared about Solel Wally. Like. I love her. That's my girl, you know, but it's, this is part of a larger trend of the way that people of color, um, in this country, but you know, in the global, like cuisine media 
first of all, are never able to ascend to the heights of white cooks and particularly white men um, in this world, but also the ways in which they are asked to prop up um, their white peers and, you know, represent um, their culture, you know, in the world of cuisine in a way that we don't ask of white chefs. So for instance, someone's like Rick Bayless, who was a white, white dude, you know, is acknowledged as like this master of Mexican cooking, right? But we don't have, um, you know, people like numbers of people, of chefs of color who are allowed to step outside of what's considered their lane and their zone. So, you know, Solel Wally talks about this, like she and her husband, you know, used to have a restaurant and they were not producing the kind of ethnic cuisine that was expected of them. And the restaurant folded, you know, we're not expecting like a Kenyan guy to be, you know, head chef of a French kitchen. You know, we expect people to, to cook essentially the way they look, if that makes sense. And so it's this huge, larger discussion. And Anita, I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this, because I know that like you live, you know, eat and breathe food and food media. This is the work you should be doing. Forget Feminist Frequency Radio. You need a cooking show. I mean, I wish. I, I think you covered that super well. And what what I want to add is actually not related to the food part of this is the um, is the accountability piece. Because I mm-hmm. think that – so a lot of the work that I've been doing in the game space over the last several months is really about like – or actually the last year is about like what does it mean for these companies to be accountable. And I think we're having these like much larger conversations right now as all of these companies are being called out for abuse and toxicity and racism and unjust labor practices. Like we don't have time to get into the Blizzard news today, but if you are familiar with the, what's happening with Blizzard, like that's related to this as well. Um, Ubisoft is like top of the <laughs> top of the, the the list right now too in terms of like what are they going to do to deal with the, the reckoning that's come their way. And so I think that this is a really great example, and I'm really glad Privia stepped up and said something publicly about this because like all these companies are saying that they're going to do things, but like are they? And are we just going to forget? Like are they just doing crisis PR and just hoping that it gets brushed over and not have to do any real structural change and not have to do any accountability to their employees in the community? And so I'm I've just just putting that out there of like, what does it mean to hold these companies accountable? Like what time period can pass before we're mm-hmm. like, okay, you didn't do the work, right? You didn't actually put in the effort to make uh, the the changes that were needed. And so I, I'm really intrigued to see what comes of the, like everything that's been happening this year. And you know that there's going to be something else tomorrow um, mm-hmm. where people are just fed up, man. They're just fucking fed up and, and folks are coming out and they're just like, Aaron, all of the all of the laundry and calling out all of these powerful people for their bullshit. So yeah. um that's that's one of the things I was thinking about with regards to this is like, hell yeah, call them out. They didn't do their shit. And they mm-hmm. don't get to get and they don't get to get away with having some like hollow statement about how they're gonna do it. Like when? When are you gonna fucking do it? Right. And just last thing, um, watch their space because I am almost certain that what's going to happen now that, you know, these these um, high profile people of color have left, they will attempt to replace them with just some other random brown people. Oh, like, yeah, for you know, sure. Like they're just going to try and slide those And they'll those pat themselves in. on the back for it, too. Yeah, they'll be like, exactly. look at us. Or they'll mm-hmm. do some really gross social media highlighting to show yeah. out like, oh, bleh. All right, y'all. We'll be right back with our weekly freakouts. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to FFR. 
If you enjoy spending a little time with us each week, please consider helping us continue to do the show by heading over to patreon.com slash femfreak. Your support will enable us to stay on top of all the latest pop culture trends week in and week out, and you can get nifty perks like early access, bonus episodes, and friendly online communities where you can hang out with your fellow listeners. Go to patreon.com slash femfreak today. Operators are standing by. Now it's time to talk even more about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Carolyn? This past week I watched a documentary called What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael. And so Pauline Kael was um, probably was for many many years the 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 main the chief film critic for the New Yorker and she was a legendary critic but but really a very divisive critic a very galvanizing critic um a critic who um had her own um like she wrote very subjectively about her experience of of Cinema and, and um, so so the thing about what she said, uh, the documentary, is that is that it's not a great film in and of its own right. Like it's like it's structurally whatever. It's just a very kind of straightforward documentary with a lot of like talking head interviews and stuff. It's not anything interesting. So it's probably not the kind of film that Pauline Kael herself would have liked very much. Um, but as a critic myself, um, I really uh, loved seeing and hearing uh, so much of Pauline Kael uh, on screen because she is a critic whose ethos as a critic I have so much respect for. Now, I have a lot of issues with Pauline Kael as a critic. I don't, she doesn't, in my mind, have a, 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 a like, a very rigorous at all, like, feminist, uh, you know, uh, outlook. Or, you know, she's she's not necessarily great at all on matters of, you know, race, things like that. Like, I have a lot of problems with her as a critic. But 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 what I admire about her, what I actually what I respect about her so much is that she like she represents, I think, just a philosophy about criticism that that I feel is so lacking today. And it was very um Like, even in her own time, there was so much resistance to it, right? Movie studios uh, tried to oust her or keep her out of screenings because they hated the way, you know, that she would just pan their films. Um, And, you know, anyway, there was a lot of pressure, you know, a lot of publications would, like, McCall's hired her for a little while, but she was so out of step with their readership that they dropped her. But, um, like, I look at the state of games criticism today, and personally, like, I think it is absolutely dire, right? You can go on Metacritic and you can look at, like, uh, like most AAA games, with the exception, you know, The Last of Us Part Two is, like, a rare exception that, that provoked a kind of diversity of, in terms of reactions. But, like, there's so much consensus around games like, say, Doom Eternal, whatever, right? This mm, AAA shooter extravaganza, where, like, I think there should be that game should be getting twos and fours and eights and nines. And like, you know, it should be passionately embraced by some critics, passionately like uh, panned by others. But that's not what we have at all, because because we have this tendency toward consensus. We have this narrow sense of of how to be a critic and how to review something. And and I long for a return to a, a kind of criticism like what Pauline Kael represented in the sense of of just how she wrote from very subjectively from her core and how 
how reading a Pauline Kael review was not about, it's not this idea of like, find critics you agree with. Like, like it's about being stimulated and challenged and having your own perspective broadened and maybe even, where even if you are, even if you passionately disagree, right, with what Pauline Kael is saying, you still get something out of the review because of how she articulates her own perspective. Um, so, um, you know, if you care about like the, the history of criticism, film criticism, if you care about where game criticism is right now, et cetera, um, you know, I, I would definitely recommend checking out um, this film for a portrait of a a critic who who I think represented something that we have lost and that I hope we get back. That sounds great, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like you will, you will. I mean, Anita, in, I mean, you will definitely be like, oh, <laughs> like you will ha- object to her perspectives like so strenuously. <laughs> I want to make that very, very clear. And like she, you know, she she defends films that I think are like damaging, like are actually harmful. Like I want to be very clear that that my championing this film has nothing to do with my agreeing with Pauline Kael's sure, perspectives. It has everything to do with with how she represented a particular deeply held fierce subjectivity as a, as a critic. So interesting. Yes. All right. Uh, Ebony, what have you been reading, watching, doing, playing? <laughs> okay. Cooking, <laughs> baking, mm-hmm. gardening. Oh God, we can't talk about my garden right now. I'm failing. Uh- <laughs> um, so <clears throat> for once, the hold list at my local library is coming through in my favor. And I was able to get a book that I've been anticipating for a while pretty quickly. And that book is the new book from Isabel Wilkerson. It's called, <clears throat> excuse me, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. So if you, um, if the name sounds familiar, Isabel Wilkerson is the woman who wrote um, the warmth of other suns and received the Pulitzer for it um, about a decade ago. I believe she was the first um, black woman to win a Pulitzer for journalism in this country. Um, so the warmth of other suns, her previous book is about uh, the great migration. Uh, this book cast the origins of our discontents is about um, racial hierarchies and order in this country. And I'm just getting started with it. And I'm so ready um for this conversation um so you know i don't have a lot to say about it yet except that i can't wait to dig further into it um and wilkerson is just a masterful writer and thinker and so i encourage other people to check it out one of the things that i love is that um and this is from an interview um in the new york times where she says of cast and cast systems quote it does its work invisibly it's often unseen I often describe it as the bones and race is the skin. And then class, for example, is the accents and the education and the clothing and the other accoutrement that we can add to ourselves to adjust ourselves, the things that we have control over. I often say that caste is so fixed that if you can act your way out of it, then it's class. But if you cannot act your way out of it, then it's caste. I'm so here for this discussion because I think like there are... There are increasingly ways in which we're talking about class in this country, but Americans as a whole simply do not have the um, the kind of like history of reckoning with class the way that other cultures and other countries do. We just we, we just simply don't. It is often perceived as being even in bad taste to mention class. Um, so yeah, just excited to dig further into this book. Isabel yeah, Wilkerson, sounds- love her. Cool. 
I feel like also um, when we talk about like there there over the last decade there's been an increase in talking about representation and and mm-hmm. sites of oppression and class still kind of gets erased mm-hmm. in a lot of that like mm-hmm. when you especially like even when you're listing out like and I I find myself guilty of this for sure where I'm just like like you know gender and race and transphobia and you know like mm-hmm. and I've just like class even you know and class just isn't included in that and so I mm-hmm. I'm I'm this book sounds really interesting and also I encourage us to to really center class in, in our discussions of, um, sites of oppression and, um, and when we're demanding better representations. Yeah. I mean, like class in this country, it runs so counter to the myth of American exceptionalism and the bootstrap myth and the myth of like the American dream that it's, it's, it's anathema to us, you know, to actually full face, you know, acknowledge class and the role that it plays in our lives in the ways that it like it's more pernicious effects. Um, so it's something that, yeah, we absolutely have to be like vocal and explicit and deliberate about addressing. It can't always be like an also ran and, you know, like the list of oppressions that we face, like racism, homophobia, sexism you know, and class. You know, it's always like kind of the last thing in the list. Yeah. And I want to also, Carolyn, acknowledge that you you do bring up class a lot. <laughs> you do mention I, it a lot. I, I class, um, mm-hmm. class matters to me. I care about class. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I didn't. I didn't want to erase. No, no, no. The, but no. But, you, but you your point is up. very well taken. I mean, I'm 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 here over here like cheering on what what both of you were saying because I <laughs> yeah. I feel that very strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to. I just finished a book. Uh, called Yay. The Outside by Ada Hoffman. Um, I'm just going to read the description of it because I can't talk today for any for some reason. Um, Autistic scientist Yasira Shen has developed a radical new energy drive that could change the future of humanity. But when she activates it, reality warps, destroying the space station and everyone aboard. The AI gods who rule the galaxy declare her work heretical, and Yasira is abducted by their agents. Instead of simply executing her, they offer mercy— if she'll help them hunt down a bigger target, her own mysterious vanished mentor. With her homeworld's fate in the balance, Ysira must choose who to trust, the gods and their ruthless post-human angels, or the rebel scientists whose unorthodox mathematics could turn her world inside out. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So I'll say this. I um, I think... So I realized, Ebony, uh, and because you and I talk about these books a lot, is that like if a book doesn't like blow my mind, I'm hesitant to bring it up on Freakouts as like, holy, this book is amazing beginning to end. And I'm trying to get out of that. So like this book is interesting. Like there's a lot of really interesting ideas here. The the gods, um, they use language like we would around religion, but the gods are AIs. Um, the, the angels ha- are like have all this circuitry priests can speak to them, but they have to get circuitry put into them as well. Like it's really interesting. Um, there were moments of lulls for me, uh, that I was like, okay, I don't know if I like this book. And then other moments that I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, becomes more interesting. I really liked that. It started an autistic, um, set multiple autistic characters and mm-hmm. they talk about, um, neurodivergence in it. Um, and the author herself is autistic. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this in this book. Um, I do. I know we're like super over time, but I do want to shout out. I've been wanting to talk about this. Um, and especially because, Ebony, you brought this up. I want to freak out, legit freak out about how bullshit the library system is when it gets pushed up against capitalism. Mm-hmm. Because the fact that <laughs> digital copies are... Right. 
adapt. There, there's no like limit to how many copies you can make. They don't depreciate. They don't fall mm-hmm. apart. You can make hundreds of copies of the same thing. But publishers demand that libraries buy individual copies of digital titles, um, the way that you would buy a a physical book. And mm-hmm. they say it's you know honoring you know author being fairly paid and blah, blah, blah. But we all know authors don't, aren't fairly paid for their work to begin with. Um, <laughs> what? I don't know anything mm-hmm. about that. Anyways. Um, and so I just, I get really, fr- I'm so frustrated every time I go on, you know, Overdrive, which is the app that that um, is used in, in a lot of U.S. Uh, libraries when it's like there are 46 of, you know, 25 copies out and holds and blah, blah, blah. And I can't get a copy of the fucking book that I want to read that's digital and it doesn't fucking matter. And so Mm -hmm. I have to wait like six weeks for it to become available when it is a digital book. Yeah. And this is totally just like another example of like bullshit capitalism. One, people not getting paid sufficiently for their art and also like hoarding. Like the, mm-hmm. the sort of capitalist mentality of like getting as much as you can, even out of libraries that are here to serve populations that like, you know, right. it pisses me off. And it also pisses me off because I get a lot of anxiety when I don't have a book to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm like, I do I start another book? Do I like wait for this one? If the hold comes up, then like I'm going to be in the middle of another book and then I'm not going to be able to finish this book. And I'm just like, y'all, this is unnecessary. So I have um, like three different reading sources um on my phone for precisely this reason anita so like i don't think i would have made it as far into this quarantine as i have without scribed and their unlimited books like i really don't you know and i will i will pay that 9.99 a month or whatever it is you know um i will i will look for pennies and a wishing fountain to pay that (laughs) if i have to I might need yeah. to look into that. I never. Yeah. I don't even know it. Um, I will say that I tried to get the deep based on your suggestion last week, and it's mm-hmm. like it's going to be like ten months until I can get access to it. So damn. Yeah, I mean, you know I'm what exaggerating that is? slightly, that's, but that's my influence. People heard I me know. freak out, and they were like, "Let me get on Overdrive and put lots on of folks in LA are like listening <laughs> to this podcast." <laughs> All right, y'all, we are going to let you go <laughs> after all of this. <laughs> we will no longer be holding you hostage. But if you want to submit your own freak out, we would love to hear from you and what you are freaking out about. And you can do that at feministfrequency.com slash freakout, F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. Thank you so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio and stay tuned for the Freakin' After Party, which is only available to backers of this podcast. Learn more at patreon.com slash femfreak. This show is engineered by Rob Para. Carrie Stimson provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Thank you all for joining us. Bye. Later. Bye. Bye.